I was speaking with someone earlier this week about this sermon series, which ended up going a, a tad bit longer than had been anticipated. And so they, they were asking me about how much longer we'd be in the series, and I said, well, uh, we're going to be in heaven for a while. And the response came back, I hope so. Heaven, you know, is our hope. It is what I hope for. It's what many of you here today hope for. But I want us to have one word of caution. It's when we use the word hope. What do we mean by that? When many people use the word hope, for instance, they'll say, I I hope that I get this new job. I hope it doesn't rain this weekend because I've got plans. I hope my team wins this game coming up. Most often what we mean is not biblical hope. You see, biblical hope is not based on wishful thinking. Instead, it is based on the promises of God. And so when we use the word hope, a lot of times we could just as easily be using the word wish. I'm wishing for this. I'm hoping for this. It's not that we really have an expectation that, that it's going to come true. It's just that we really would like it to happen. And so when people tell me, you know, when I die, I hope I go to heaven. The first thing that comes into my mind is, what kind of hope do you have? Are you saying that it's a wish of mine, a desire of mine, that when I die, I go to heaven? I think you'd find quite a few people in that boat. Or do you have a confident assurance based on the promises of God that because of your faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else, when this life is over, you have a home that is promised and guaranteed to you in heaven. When you say, I hope I go to heaven, what is it that you mean? Is it a wish or is it an assurance? We have been considering the reality of heaven over the course of these last few weeks, and we'll continue to do so for at least another couple of weeks. But today we will actually begin to touch on the alternative to that heavenly home. Not a pleasant alternative at all. You see, heaven is prepared for all of God's children, but what the Bible tells us very clearly is that not everyone is going to be there. And so today we'll begin to touch on that alternative as well. Would you pray with me as we prepare our hearts to hear the word of God together? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us. That you'd move in us and through us. That you'd prepare us to receive what you have for us today. And that in doing so, we might be changed. Mind and heart, body and soul. In Jesus' name, amen. We are back in Revelation 21. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them back to that spot. We'll pick up where we left off last week. So far in two weeks, we've got through six verses. That's pretty good, actually. For those of you who hadn't been with us for a while, if you uh, remember going through Matthew, it was about three years. I promise this won't last three years. Revelation chapter 21. We're going to look at a couple of verses here, verses 7 and eight. And this is what God's word says. He who overcomes will inherit all this and I will be his God 
and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is a second death. As I begin to read those words, it's kind of interesting what goes through your mind. I remember as a child, I'd go and stay at my grandmother's house. I enjoyed that. She lived out on a farm. My grandmother loved to watch The Price is Right. And I got to tell you, as I read verse 7, The Price is Right ran through my mind. And I'm thinking, you're probably thinking, why in the world would The Price is Right go through your mind? Well, The Price is Right always had a, at the end, they'd have the showcase showdown. Okay, for any of you not familiar with it, basically it was two people who'd come out and gotten the, gotten the most money during the day, most winnings, and they were pitted against each other. And so they'd open, by, open up the curtain or open up the doors, and there'd be all selection of prizes, and the announcer would come on and say, and all this can be yours if the price is right. As I read this, who he who overcomes will inherit all this It is almost as if Jesus is sweeping his arm across the landscape of the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem and saying, and all this not could be yours. All this is yours. Prepared for you. And the price has already been paid. All this is yours. This is your inheritance. This is what I came to prepare for you. Now, who is it who receives this inheritance? Well, immediately you would say it's all those people who believe in Jesus. But I want you to notice what's being said here. He who overcomes will inherit all this. Now, wait a minute. Pastor Jimmy, I've been listening to you for a while, and I know that you teach that salvation is not based on your works, but it's by grace through faith is something you receive, not something you earn. But overcoming sounds like something I have to do in order to be saved. What's this all about? Well, if we were to flip back a few pages and go to the second and third chapters of Revelation, you'd see these letters to seven churches. Jesus is addressing seven churches in Asia Minor. And in every one of those, he makes promises to those who overcome. Come. Are overcomers some special class of Christians? Are they super saints? Are they the 144,000? Who are these overcomers? Who are these people who overcome? Well, the good news is that the Bible provides the answer. Wouldn't you like to know if the inheritance is promised to those who overcome? Wouldn't you like to know who the overcomers are? I'm glad somebody does. (laughs) And we find it in the letter of 1 John, chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. Let that sink in. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is a victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. These are verses you may want to tack up someplace on those days you don't feel much like an overcomer. 
on the days you feel like the bug on the windshield. These are the days you may want to go back and look at this verse and remember. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Those people who are born again, who are born from above, who are born of God, these are those who overcome. To put it simply, those who overcome are the ones who place their faith in Jesus alone for their salvation. And the proof of their faith is found in their overcoming. It is not the overcoming that that gives them faith. It is the fact that they have faith that enables them to overcome. It It is those who don't wimp out, who don't fizzle out, but who endure and therefore show that their faith is real. On the other hand, the Bible says that those who do not belong to God will face an eternity in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And it gives us a list of those who are excluded from the kingdom. And we want to go through very quickly and touch on each of these so you have some idea of what it means. It includes the cowardly. That is, those who claimed faith in Jesus but would not stand for him in the face of opposition. As John wrote, they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And there are a lot of people... There are a lot of people who have their name on a church roll who will say, I am a Christian, or I have been baptized, or I go to such and such a church, or I used to go to such and such a church. There are a lot of people who do that. And yet Jesus, in fact, said, there will be many who say to me, Lord, Lord, but who will not enter the kingdom. How is that possible? It's because... There needs to be a new birth, a new beginning, a new start. As we place our faith in Jesus Christ, just because we come down and tell the preacher, hey, uh, I've accepted Jesus into my heart, and then you get dunked in the lake or in a baptistry, and you get your name put on the church roll, Just because you've done all those things does not mean that you've been born again. It's not the external that's as important as the internal. You can do all those religious things. You can say those prayers that a preacher would lead you to say. And yet never have a new birth. And that's why it's so important to look at this concept of the overcomers. Those who overcome are the ones who believe. And the proof of their belief is in their overcoming. The cowardly back away from Jesus. And in the time of John's writing, in the time of John's writing, there was great persecution among believers. And they were given the opportunity to turn back from their faith in Jesus Christ, but they wouldn't. And many of them went to their deaths. Because they took a stand for Jesus Christ and would not back off. Some of you have seen in the news, on the internet, you've seen the persecutions. In fact, coming up next month, we'll have a day of prayer for the persecuted church. The Iranian pastor, perhaps you read about him in the news, who was put on trial for apostasy because he believed in Jesus Christ and he wouldn't back off from that. 
He wouldn't stop that. He wouldn't say, no, 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 uh, I don't, uh, Jesus is just a, just a prophet, but, but I'm going to believe in, in Muhammad. I'm going to trust him as being the supreme prophet. He wouldn't back off of his faith. And he faced death for it. Now, there's been a reprieve, there'll be a retrial, but we don't know. His is just the one in the news, though. What we don't see are the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of other Christians who simply because they follow Jesus are persecuted, tortured, abused, but they won't back down. I've often wondered, if persecution swept across the United States, how many of us would stand and not be cowardly? The proof of our faith is in our overcoming. So the cowardly is one category. The unbelieving are another, and the unbelieving are those who've died. Without believing in Jesus Christ, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Those who do not believe, for them, heaven is not their home. The next category gives us are those who are vile. And that is those whose lives have been given over to unrepentant sin. They're unclean, and therefore they will not enter into the holy city. In Revelation 21, 27, we read, Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now I understand that you and I, all, we all have a tendency to stumble into sin, and sometimes, sadly, to walk into sin with our eyes wide open. But if your life is marked by unrepentant sin, there's something wrong at the core. And those who are vile, those whose lives are marked by unrepentant sin, heaven, it says, is not their home. The next category is, well, I've lumped these two together because they're pretty well self-explanatory. Murderers and the sexually immoral. These are people who've chosen to abandon God's will and to pursue their own will. And by doing so, they end up destroying lives and destroying families. That's not to mark the life of someone who claims to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. The next category is those who practice magic arts. Now that's not talking necessarily about magicians who pull rabbits out of hats and cut women in half. Well, not really, but that's the trick. What John meant here, what Jesus meant, is that those who rely on witchcraft, who rely on voodoo, in order to gain power or to manipulate circumstances by using potions or spells or appealing to gods or, or goddesses. And these are, these are goddesses that are typically tied to the earth. If you, ask, if you ask a Wiccan if they worship the devil, they'll tell you no. They worship the spirits of the earth. It's the same thing that you find in, in many other countries. It's, it's what we encounter when we go to Zambia. They're worshiping the spirits of dead ancestors in order to gain power or in order to manipulate circumstances. Other people are going to worship the spirits of the air, the spirits of the ground, or the spirits of the mountains, or the spirits of the rivers 
It's the same kinds of thing. It's all tied into that, that same kind of occultic kind of worship. Now, it doesn't mean that if you happen to look at your horoscope one week or open a fortune cookie and read what it says that somehow you drifted off into the occult. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that as a normal practice of life because those things have a tendency to, to drift in and to stick. But as believers, that has no place for us. Our lives are not governed by the stars or the movement of the planets. Our lives are not governed by, by any kind of special alignment that's going to take place. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your life is governed by him. The next category that he gives us are those who are idolaters. That is those who worship false gods. And, and certainly we've read a lot about that as we went through the, the minor prophets and the worship of Baal and the worship of Asherah. These were idols that were set up. And we, we recognize that that's still practice in some countries as people bow themselves down to idols. But we go, you know, here in the United States, we're far too sophisticated for that kind of thing. We don't have any idols. There's nothing set up for us to fall down and worship. But if we really think that, we're awfully short-sighted. Because anything, anything that you place in priority above God can be an idol for you. It can be your money. It can be your job. It can be your family. As wonderful as your family is, your family can become an idol for you. There's so many things that we set up and we, we, our lives revolve around those things. They have control of us. They dictate our time. They dictate our decisions. And if that's true, then we worship idols. But we're told by God that's not what it's for. God is spirit. There's no image that you need to worship, nothing you need to bow down to. God is spirit. He can't be contained in an image. He can't be contained in a building. And the final category that we're given is those of liars. Those who speak falsely and who live hypocritical lives. It's an interesting study the next time that you read through the Bible to look for this concept of, of lying and how, how much God despises it. Because it really gets down to the integrity of who you are. Jesus said to, to the hypocritical, to those people around him who lived hypocritical lives, he said, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. My father is faithful and true. And he wants me to be faithful and true. A person of integrity. Jesus said, let your yes be yes. And your no be no. And that's enough. Anything else you add to it is going to lead you to sin. And so we need to be people of integrity because those who have no integrity have no place in the kingdom. And what we're told is that these have a place in the lake of fire. It's the second death. And the wording of this is very interesting. 
It is the lake which burns with fire and sulfur or fire and brimstone. It's a literal translation. And the tense, the tense of the verb suggests an ongoing burning. Now, when we get, when we get to the portion of this series on hell and we begin to look at the different ideas of, of what hell is and how long it lasts and all those fun things, when we get there, one of the things you'll discover is that there are some people who see hell as being a temporary abode. Some see it as being non-existent. But this gives us one clue that this will not be a short-term stopover, but that this is an ongoing burning. And it's not a pleasant thought. The second death will be an eternal punishment. But worse than the fire is the eternal separation from God. No satisfaction, no contentment, no comfort, no peace. And it's forever. As we read these, just these verses, there are three powerful messages that I want to make sure you get from this to take home. And the first is that there is comfort to those who are in Jesus. There's comfort to those who are in Jesus. That's the first message we should get from this. There's an internal inheritance prepared for you. That should comfort you. No matter what you're going through in this life, it should comfort you to know that there's an eternal inheritance awaiting you. The second truth that we can get from this is that there's a a warning to those who have not received Jesus. And that warning is there's a place prepared for those who aren't going to heaven. And it is really not where you want to spend eternity. And the third truth, the message that we can drive from this is that there's motivation for us to share the good news of Jesus to those who are in the world. How are they going to know if we don't tell them? We've been given the message. We've been given the gospel. We've been given the truth to share. How are people going to know if we don't tell them? Well, you may not have noticed this, but so far, as we've talked about heaven, as we've talked about our eternal home, we haven't mentioned any of the physical characteristics of heaven. You know, as you think about it, streets of gold, crystal sea, you you begin to think about those things, but up to this point, none of those things has even been mentioned. To this point, we focused on the fact that followers of Jesus Christ will have a home with God forever. And to be quite honest, that is what's most important. What is worst about hell is it is eternal separation from God. What is best about heaven is the eternal union with God. If our eternal home, if the place that Jesus prepared for us was nothing but a rambling shack in a mosquito-infested swamp, and yet Jesus were there, it would still be heaven. You need to remember this. Our ultimate aim in this life when it's over is not a place, but a person. Don't mix that up. Don't miss that. Don't get so fixated when we move into the descriptions of heaven. Don't get so fixated on the beauty of it. And it will be beautiful. It will be glorious beyond our imagination, beyond our comprehension. 
But don't miss this. That is not our ultimate aim, to go to a place. Our ultimate aim is to go to a person. Today we want to start, and we're just going to dip our toe into looking a little bit more closely at what our heavenly home is going to be like. And then we'll come back and expand on it a little bit more next week. But if you've got your Bibles, look, look with me in verse, verses 9 and 10. One of the seven angels who'd had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, John mentions here one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the last plagues. Last, according to Revelation 15, because with them God's wrath is completed when those seven bowls are emptied out. In chapter 17, one of the angels spoke to John, showing him the destruction of the city of Babylon, the center of Antichrist worship. It was one of the angels the seven bowls. Now, this may be the exact same angel, maybe another of those seven, but this time, instead of an angel showing John the city of Babylon and the destruction that awaited it, instead, this angel shows, takes John to a, to a high place like he's on a mountain, and, and he sees not a city doomed for destruction, but a glorious city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And he says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now, we we know the lamb is Jesus. That's an image that we have. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But usually when the bride is referred to, it's it's the body of Christ. The church is, is the bride. And yet here, the bride is the city. Now, has, has John gotten mixed up here? Has he, he gotten off base a little bit? Has he written something down wrong? No. What we need to understand is that city is made for us. We are the bride of Christ. And the city and the church, the redeemed of God, are so closely knitted together that it too is bride-like and so it is fitting that that place that belongs to the bride is also referred to as the bride John's given this vision from a high mountain and he sees the holy city New Jerusalem and we get to see a little bit of it through his eyes picking up in verse 11 it's shown with the glory of God And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three on the north, three on the south and three on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This city is described in terms that, to be quite honest, if you study it, get a little bit confusing. First of all, it is a city of lights, but not like Las Vegas. It is a solitary light. The city glimmers, it shines, it, it glows. And it glows 
with the glory of God. And the Bible is called, and the Old Testament is called the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory is the visible manifestation of God's presence. And the city glowed with it. It is that same, it is that same light that caused the bush to burn and, and, and led the children of Israel through the wilderness behind a pillow of fire. It is that same brilliance that covered Mount Sinai, that filled the tabernacle, that filled the temple. It is that shining of the presence of God. And in, in the New Jerusalem, it is unfiltered and unrestricted so that the city itself glows with the light. Now, we're familiar with light. They were familiar with light in their time. When it got dark, they'd light an oil lamp. But it didn't give off very much light. In your house, you, you may have bulbs. You may go up to 100 watts. Now, that's pretty bright. But it doesn't compare to this city. As a matter of fact, the shining of this city cannot be outshone by the sun itself. It is said that it has a brilliance like a precious jewel, glimmering like a diamond in the light. You see, the brilliance is not just how bright the light is, but how gloriously beautiful the light is. It shines like a jasper, but clear as crystal. I don't know if you are familiar with jasper. If you've got the internet, you may just want to go home this afternoon and do a Google search and look up Jasper. First thing you'll get is Jasper County. You want to look on down, look for the mineral Jasper. I'm serious, that's what you'll get, I did it. When you get a picture of Jasper, what you're going to see doesn't look really beautiful in its normal state. It is a, a rock of typically reddish or brownish color. It can have a little yellow in it. Some uh, will turn even blue or green. There's a lot of iron that's mixed in with jasper that gives it the color that it has. And so rust actually creates that reddish color, and, and mainly it is kind of reddish. But it's not clear. It's dense. Oh, you can polish it and make it shine, but it's, it's nothing like what we're talking about right here. And so what John is trying to do is to give us, give us something that it, it's like this, but it's not this. It shines like jasper, but it's, it's clear as crystal. It shines like a diamond, but it, it's not like a diamond. And what we've got to remember is that when we read this book of Revelation, or anytime anyone gets a glimpse into heaven, we're getting a communication of something that is in many ways inadequate. There are no real comparisons. And so it would be like John saying this. The city was like Jasper, but it wasn't Jasper, and it wasn't like Jasper, and yet it was. Do you get that? No, you don't. <laughs> and that's kind of the point. It makes no sense. It's like the babbling of a child trying to tell you the, about the fight they got in at school that day. They're just, you know, it's all over the map. But it's the best John can do. And so as we think about this city, we've got this, this, this glowing city. It's, it's brilliant. It's, it's beautiful. It's like a diamond. And yet it glows with kind of a 
excuse me, kind of a, a reddish glow. And it's glorious. And the city had a high wall. Later we'll see that all the walls were high. We'll get the exact measurements. But the, in the ancient times, city walls were made for two reasons. Number one was for protection. And that is to keep out the enemies. Well, this city obviously doesn't need walls for protection. But the other reason city walls were built was for status. Now, what we're going to find out next week is that the walls of the city were 1,500 miles high. Now, I tell you, earthly kings made some pretty high walls to make their cities look very, very impressive. But compared to this city, they might as well have put up a split rail fence. What we're seeing is the status of God on display in the walls of this city. And the city had 12 gates. Three gates on each of the four walls of the city. And in verse 25, when we get there, we find out that the gates never close. Now, why would you close gates of a city? Can you, anybody give me an idea? To keep the bad guys out, right? Close the gates of the city at night so the bad guys don't come in. My dad loved to watch westerns. And they'd build a fort. And when the Indians were coming, they'd close the gates. Only made sense. You want to keep the bad guys out. Well, I got to tell you, in heaven, the gates never close. That's better than Denny's, isn't it? Denny's never closes. Well, the gates of the city never close. Why? Because there's no danger. There's nothing to protect. The walls weren't there to protect anyone. It wasn't there to keep people out or keep people in. They were there to show the grandeur and the glory of God, but the gates never closed, and at each gate is posted an angel. Now, again, is the angel there to keep bad people out? No. Actually, what we find out, once we hit Revelation chapter 21, people's eternal destinies have been decided. Those folks who aren't going to go to heaven are already residing in the lake of fire. And so there's no bad people to get in. Satan and the demons, they're cast into the lake of fire. They're not getting out. So why are the angels there at the gates? Well, the answer is, we don't know. But we can certainly conjecture. And here's my conjecture. They're at the gates to proclaim the glory of God. They didn't draw the assignment around the throne. But they drew the assignment at the gates to stand there by gates 1,500 miles high. And just like the walls of the city itself proclaim the glory of God, the angels at the gates proclaim the glory of God. And on those gates are written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, did you notice that the foundations of this city are exposed? That's not something we do. The foundations of our buildings, are they're, they're covered up. They're underground. They're, you know, they're, 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 they're not exposed. But, but these foundations are exposed. And on the names, uh, uh, and on the foundation are the names of the 12 apostles. Let's think about this for a minute. The 12 tribes, the 12 apostles, the old covenant, 
the New Covenant, the Old Testament, the New Testament. What is this saying? There's a message here. And the message is this. God is not simply a God of the Old Testament. Nor is he some new God that popped up on the scene for the New Testament. The God who created heavens and earth. The God who chose the people of Israel and guided them through the process. is the same God who's the father of Jesus Christ. The same God who established the church. The same God who will bring the new creation and who bring all things to an end. He is one God with one plan to save lost and sinful man through the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. There's been one plan. Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the earth. Before the earth was ever formed, God had a plan. And this is its culmination. Now, I told you my grandmother used to like the prices right. I'm going to give you an insight into my intellect right now. One of my favorite shows as a teenager. Well, second to Charlie's Angels, of course. I was a teenage boy, after all. Was the A-Team. <laughs> now, there are a couple of good lines in the A-Team. You know, Mr. T was always saying, I pity the fool. But George Papard had his own line. With a cigar in his mouth, he would say, I love it when a plan comes together. Well, what we're seeing here, as we look at Revelation 21 and 22, is the plan of God coming together. And I don't think God's standing around with a cigar in his mouth, but I bet you God loves it as his plan comes together. We're part of that plan. Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. The question I have this morning is, did he go and prepare a place for you? Is that your eternal dwelling? Is that where you will be? If not, if you're willing to turn over your life, repent of who you were and what you've done, and come with a humble heart, to genuinely receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord and begin to follow him for the rest of your life, then I want to tell you, God wants you to do that. God sent his son so that you might do that. Jesus died for you so that he could prepare a home for you, so that you could be where he is forever.